Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to stand in the gospel. And Lord, we pray that as we look together into this passage, you would increase our esteem for and understanding of Experience the of our great high priest. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this passage. We pray that you would teach us from it and that you would cause us to worship even as we look together into it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open, I would urge you to open to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 10 through 18. And I want to say at the outset that this book of Hebrews is so rich and full and there are so many things going on at so many different levels that we are not going to exhaust it today. And really the only way for you to begin to savor these levels, for you to begin to experience the different, the different layers of meaning is for you to internalize the message of this passage. So uh, I think the best way to do that is to memorize it. And, and um, so I would encourage you to consider committing passages like the one before us to memory so that your heart can dwell on them in quiet moments. So that when you have opportunity to reflect on what's going on around you, this is where your mind goes. Uh, one of the questions that's before us as we look at a passage like this is, are we going to save ourselves... And are we going to rely on ourselves, or are we going to experience the Savior? In this passage, in Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, the author of Hebrews suggests that you can find your identity in what Christ has done for you. Look at verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory. How would, how would your self-conception change if your primary instinct when thinking of who you are would be to think something like, I'm a child of God, I'm a son of God, even if you're a female, you have the status of son, so I think son is important there because a son in the ancient world was the heir and you're going to inherit the world with Christ, so I think sonship is important even if you're a fe female. You're a son of God who's being led to glory, your identity, your dignity. This is, this is one of those fearful things to say, one of those amazing things to say. But the fact that the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, gave himself for our salvation causes dignity to overflow to us. It dignifies us that he would die for us. And then we could just go on this way. Meaning, purpose, your cleansing 
Look at verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, you're cleansed by him. You're, you're in solidarity with him, as we'll see. He'll, he'll call his people brothers. You're given courage because you're, you're freed from, from your fear of death. You're delivered. You're helped. You receive mercy. You experience propitiation. All of this is what Christ gives to his people. And so if you will experience the Savior, you will, you will receive all of this from him instead of trying to get all this by virtue of your own performance or by virtue of your own accomplishment. You can rest in what Christ has done and who he, who he is. As we've seen, as we've worked our way up to this point in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 1 and, and I'm going to, Lord willing, I'm going to repeat something like this each time. And I hope that as you hear me say this each week, it will help you to internalize the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews. So 1, 1 through 4, God is spoken in his son. 1, 5 through 14, the son is greater than the angels. And then 2, 1 through 4, we should pay attention. There's no escape because it's the son who is spoken. 2, 5 through 9, everything is subject to him. And then that brings us to 2, 10 through 18. And I think the big idea is, um, flowing out of 2, 5 through 9, everything is subjected to him, 2, 10 through 18, who took on flesh to save us. So this eternal, everlasting, second person of the Godhead, the Word who was with the Father in the beginning, has become man. And last time we were together, two weeks ago, we considered the theological profundity of this passage. We just made a start into the passage. Today, we're going to look more at the Old Testament fulfillment that we, that we have working in Hebrews 2, 10 through, 14, 10 through 18. But first, let me just briefly summarize by running through those questions again and by giving you something I forgot to give you last time uh, when we were together two weeks ago. So the theological profundity, uh, profundity in this passage comes from these questions, who, what, when, why, and how. And then what I forgot to add was the wow that's in the past passage. So who? We're dealing with a single subject, the Lord Jesus. He is one person. He's one person. Okay, so with the Trinity, you've got three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they share one divine nature. With the incarnate Son, you've got one person who has two natures. Okay, so we're dealing with, who are we dealing with? One person. What are we dealing with? I just mentioned it, the two natures. Uh, a human nature and a divine nature. When, when, as it pertains to the Lord Jesus, he is from eternity. There never was a time when he was not. He, he's eternally begotten of the Father. And he's manifest in the flesh in the last days. So there's sort of two periods of time that we're dealing with. From eternity past, and then he comes in the last days. He's born of a woman. Why? Well, um, this why question is really getting at why does the Bible talk about the Lord Jesus the way it does? I mean, how, why can John say, for instance, in the beginning was the word, and then say in chapter 4 that he was tired and so he sat down by a well, and he asked this woman for a drink. And, and why can the author of Hebrews speak of him as being, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 2, um, through whom also he created the world, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, he's going to suffer. Why can this be done? Well, 
because uh, we, we can speak of, of his human nature at one moment and then his divine nature at another moment. And to really bring this out, I want to quote again something that, that Cyril of Alexander says about the Lord Jesus. And, and I would just encourage you to hear these words and ponder them. Cyril says, He did not cease to be God when he became man. He did not cease to be God when he became man. So somehow, you have an infinite God who cannot be contained in a particular location who has taken on flesh. This is, this is a profound mystery. And then uh, later in his book, Cyril says of the Lord Jesus that, uh, let me find this quotation, here it is, the word was alive even when his holy flesh was tasting death. The word was alive. As God, as, as it pertains to his, human, his divine nature, he was alive even when his flesh, as it pertains to his human nature, he was tasting death. So this is, this is uh, why can we speak of the Lord Jesus this way? Because he is one person with two natures, and we have to, in some sense, use this twofold manner of speech. Now with respect to his human nature, now with respect to his divine nature, or as the, uh, the, um, uh, one of the creeds says, he is consubstantial with the Father as regards his deity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. So he has two natures, human and divine, which undergo no confusion, no change, no distinction, and no separation. And this is beyond us. This, this, is, this is why we, we come to the end of our ability to understand and we bow before the Lord Jesus in worship. Uh, how? How does this work? Well, we're, we're dealing with the Son as he exists theologically, uh, who he is with reference to the Father, and then as he came as a man. So we can speak of, of both him as God and then him coming on the mission to accomplish salvation. And then what I forgot to add last week were these, these paradoxes. So I read to you the paradoxes. I forgot to point out that they're paradoxes. And, and it, in some ways, it, they're, they're the kinds of things that we see in Hebrews 2.10. Look at, look at Hebrews 2.10 with me. The author writes, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Now, he's going to go on to start talking about the Lord Jesus as the verse continues. So he goes on to say, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So it's the Lord Jesus who is the founder of salvation made perfect through suffering. And that would imply that it's the Father that is spoken of at the beginning of verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. That's the Father. And then it's Jesus, who's the founder of salvation, made perfect through suffering. But look at that phrase, by whom all things exist, there in verse 10. That is the exact same language used in chapter 1, verse 2, when it says, as the ESV renders chapter 1, verse 2, through whom also he created the world. That through whom in 1-2 could just as well be rendered by whom. Or the by whom in 2-10 could just as, be, just as well be rendered through whom. 
So the, the, Jesus is included in the first part of 2.10. So it's as though, on the one hand, the author of Hebrews is saying, it was fitting that him, for whom the Father, and through whom all things exist, and Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now he's talking about Jesus as the founder of, so Jesus is God, then Jesus is man, being made perfect through suffering. They're, they're brought together, and it's this paradoxical reality that, that you can speak of him as both God and man in the very same sentence. Uh, so the author of Hebrews does this, and I, I read you some statements of, of Cyril and others doing this last, last week. Um, as, we, as we go through this passage, uh, I am astounded at how much this author has packed into this passage. Because as, as we've already seen here from chapter 2, verse 10, you, you have this reality that the one who needs no perfecting, Jesus, who always has been God, always has been everything he needs to be, is going to be described as being somehow perfected. And we'll, we'll think about what's going on there. And then you also, so you have this, this sort of layer of, of theological profundity working in this passage. And now as we work through the passage, we're also going to see all of this Old Testament fulfillment as we go through. And the, the Old Testament fulfillment is going to begin and end with priestly concerns. So look again at verse 10. And as I've just indicated, it says, for it was fitting that he, I think this is both the Father and the Son being spoken of together here, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Now those sons, this is going to be elaborated upon as we make our way through the passage, but these are the people that belong to Jesus, and these sons who are being brought to glory, again, are the ones for whom he has tasted death in 2.9. So in 2.9 he says... uh, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, and then he's going to flesh out the meaning, and he's doing that here in 2.10, speaking of how he's bringing many sons to glory. And if we ask, what is the glory? I think the answer is the new heavens and new earth, the the resurrection of the body, the, the anticipation of the consummation of all things. That's where the Father is bringing us. So your life is not purposeless, Your life is not meaningless. In the same way that the Lord Jesus was being made was made perfect through suffering, it's like the author of Hebrews is going to say in chapter 12. God is treating you as sons. God is bringing you to glory, and He's doing that through the suffering that you experience. And so, three one, He's going to say, um, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest. And he's also going to say that in 12.1 through 3, or 12.4, I think it is. Consider Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. So this consideration of the Lord Jesus is what enables us to persevere through the suffering that we know is being used to perfect us and bring us to glory in the same way that the Son himself was perfected through suffering. So continuing there in verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder there is, is uh, a term that, that is used to refer to those who go before and make a way. So you could call him the pioneer. Uh, the, in, in Greek, the term is archegon, 
And, and when we bring those kinds of words over into English, we have words like archbishop or archdeacon or, you know, uh, archangel, these kinds of words. So the arch part signifies that he's first and he's preeminent. And then the agon part signifies that he's the leader. He's the one who brings. He's the arch bringer, we might say, or the arch leader or pioneer or founder. I mean, English sort of fails us as we, as we try to do this. But that's who Jesus is. He's the, the pioneer of our salvation. And then he's made perfect through suffering. Now here, uh, the way that this term made perfect is used in the Old Testament, I think is really helpful because uh, the, this particular term is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when, for instance, um, Aaron and his sons are, uh, we might say, ordained. In fact, I think that's the English translation in the ESV. When they are ordained to serve as priests, when they, when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they used this, this term that we have here at this point in Hebrews 2.10. And I think the author of Hebrews is suggesting that the Lord Jesus has been ordained or e equipped and set apart as the high priest through the suffering. Now, the, 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 this comes from the fact that that word that's rendered ordained in Hebrew is a word that we often translate fill. And if you remember when we were in the book of Exodus and we looked at the, uh, the uh, ordination of Aaron and his sons, the expression, the literal expression that's used is that their hands are filled. You, you fill their hands for the work and, and thereby you ordain the priest to do the work. And I think this connotation of filling the hands is, is where the Greek translator used this term perfect, you know, give him everything that he needs to serve his priest. So consider this, the one who is full, the Lord Jesus, was, was he had his hands filled to serve his high priest through suffering. The one who was full was filled up by suffering which is bizarre to think about because as God, he cannot be harmed. He cannot suffer. So as God, of course, he did not suffer. But as man, because he took on flesh, he was ordained in the sense of made perfect or had his hands filled for the work in order to serve as a high priest. And the filling of his hands came through suffering. You know, I think what this is telling us is that you can never look at the Lord Jesus and say, you don't understand my plight. You don't understand my condition. You don't understand what it's like to be tempted. At every one of those utterances, the Lord Jesus could respond, I was born of woman. I was tempted in every way that you are. I endured the cross. He, he has an answer for every one of those you don't, you can't statements. And then the author continues in verse 11, for he who sanctifies, and this again is terminology that's used of the priests. The priests were sanctified. They were consecrated to do the work. And it's the Lord Jesus who is consecrating a priesthood of believers. He, the, the great high priest, who sanctifies, who consecrates, or makes holy those who are sanctified. His people, the author continues, they all, those 
he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And as I said last time, I think that there's kind of a both and here where uh, we all have our source in God. And then also, in a sense, uh, we all descend from Adam. So in the same way that the Lord Jesus was born of the Father in eternity, eternity past, begotten of the Father, so also his people are begotten of the Father, born again. And then in the, in the way that uh, the, the descent of the Lord Jesus could be traced back to Adam, so also all hum, humankind can be traced back to Adam. So everything from the beginning of chapter 2, verse 10, through the middle of verse 11 at this point, I think pertains to the Lord Jesus as a great high priest. Now the author is going to introduce the concept of him being our brother in the middle of verse 11. So because we all have one source, we all and the Lord Jesus in God the Father and in Adam, verse 12, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And I don't know if, if um, you've had a time in your life. I know I, as growing up, there, there were times when I did not want to be identified with members of my family. Can you imagine? Uh, yes. You know, particularly, there, there are times, my, my parents will tell this story. When I was a kid, uh, people used to go to the mall, like on a Friday night. And all the teenagers would go hang out with their friends at the mall. And uh, that my, my parents will tell the story that they, they took me to the mall one Friday evening, and I said to them, okay, you guys go do your thing. I do not want to be seen with you. And, 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 and I, you know, I, to my shame, I was ashamed of my family. Look at what this text says. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Think about who he is. Think about how he has always loved righteousness and hated wickedness, as the author said in chapter 1. And then think about who we are and how we have lived and what we have done, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And, and then in verse 12, the author is going to quote Psalm 22. Now, I want to take just a moment. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read a couple of statements from Psalm 22. Since we're coming so hard on the heels of 210, he was made perfect through suffering. So opening verse, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a little lower down in verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And you recognize these statements from Psalm 22, because this is what the Lord Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then uh, Matthew notes how they were mocking him, and they were wagging their heads at him. And they were saying, they were throwing these words at him. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him if he delights in him. And then as the psalm continues, eventually we get down to verse 21 where David says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So he, David, I would argue, in, in Psalm 22, David is describing an experience of difficulty in his own human life. But David knows that what happens to him portends, prefigures, 
typifies what's going to happen to the greater son who's been promised to him. So I would argue that as David describes his own experience, he consciously intends people to understand that this prefigures the experience of the one to come. And then verse 22 are the words quoted in Hebrews 2, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So I would propose to you that David is the Lord's anointed king. And at that, at that point in time, he's also a, a prophet. And he is leading the people of God. So if you're a, a believing member of the Old Covenant remnant in David's time, you're going to be identified with David. So that if David suffers, you suffer. If David triumphs, you triumph. And I think the same thing is going on here in Hebrews 2. And the author of Hebrews is saying what David typified is actually fulfilled in Jesus. The suffering of David is fulfilled in the suffering of Jesus. And the, the way that the people of David celebrate when he's delivered, you've delivered me from the horns of the, of the wild oxen, I will tell of your name to my brothers. He announces the victory. So also, when Jesus conquers, the people of Jesus hear the proclamation of his victory. So I think that's the, the sense in, in which that uh, verse comes into play. And again, uh, David, is, is, uh, he's the king. So we've got priestly concerns in 2.10 through 11a, and then we could say we've got royal concerns with the quotation of this, this line from David here in verse 12. And then look at verse 13. This says, and again, and, and the author, of course, is continuing the thought of the Lord Jesus speaking that starts at the end of verse 11. He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, then he quotes Psalm 22, now verse 13, and again, and now he's going to quote Isaiah 8, where Isaiah the prophet says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Denny read a portion of Isaiah 7 and 8 earlier in the service. And what's going on in that passage is the king of Israel is rejecting the prophet Isaiah. The king of Israel is facing a conspiracy from the northern kingdom of Israel and the nation of Syria. They want to they take out the king of Israel and they want to put a puppet king in their place. And, and the Lord sends the prophet Isaiah to warn the king. And he tells Isaiah to take along his son. And his son has this name, She'ar Jashub, which means a remnant shall return, which means we're going into exile. Now, if you're the king of Israel and you're trying to avoid going into exile, you're probably not going to be very happy to see the prophet coming toward you with this kid named, a remnant shall return a name that announces there's no avoiding the exile. And then as the passage goes on, Isaiah has another kid, and he names him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And Maher Shalal Hashbaz means something like, they're going to plunder us fast, which again means we're going into exile. The enemy army's coming, they're going to conquer and defeat us, and they're going to carry us off into exile, and they're going to plunder us really quickly. That's what the name means. So Isaiah has these kids whose names declare judgment to the king. And the king is rejecting the prophet Isaiah, and he's not happy about these kids. And Isaiah is saying, Behold, I and the children whom God has given to me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. 
That's, that's the line that's quoted here. So again, you've got a scenario where, in a sense, the leader of God's people, the prophet Isaiah, has these people around him who identify with him, in this case, his children, and they're being rejected and persecuted by the establishment. So in the same way that what we saw in David is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and his people, what we see in Isaiah is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and his people. So the Old Testament fulfillment that's at work here has everything to do with David saying to those who align with him, you're my brothers, and my deliverance is your deliverance. And Isaiah saying to his kids, you're my children, and they're persecuting us, but I'm with you, and God is with you. And then the Lord Jesus, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, behold, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah trusted the Lord. Jesus trusted the Lord. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And look at, look at what the author has done. He starts with priestly concerns in 2, 10, and 11. Then he quotes the king. Then he quotes the prophet. So it's, it's, it's somewhat subtle because he's not saying, hey, look, priest and king and prophet, but it's there. He's communicating it for us. And that brings us to verse 14, where the author applies all this to the incarnation. The fact that the second person of the Godhead became human. Verse 14, since therefore the children, picking up the word children from the previous uh, verse in the quotation of Isaiah 8, behold, I and the children God has given me, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I would invite you to marvel at the extent to which the eternal and infinite, all-wise and ever-living God was pleased to go to accomplish the salvation of his people. He took on flesh. He took on mortality. He took on the limitations of a human body. Paul describes it in Philippians 2 as, as him emptying himself and taking on the form of a slave. And we can all be humbled by this because I suspect that it is true of all of us, all of us, that if we were in the position that the Lord Jesus was in, we would not have done what he did for people like us. But he did it. He did it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then here's, here's the cent central statement of the passage. That through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And we talked about this last time. The devil's power over death comes from the fact that he is the one who introduced sin into the world. He is the one who tempted uh, the man and the woman into the transgression through one man's sin into the world and death through sin, Paul says in Romans 5.12. And so as a result of that, the devil is described here as having the power of death and the way that the Lord Jesus dealt a death blow to death was by dying. The Lord Jesus took on flesh, submitted himself to death, and thereby conquered. 
because, as we've said, he was also, as the word, alive, even as, as a man, he died. Not only does he destroy the one who has the power of death, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All those who through fear of death were subject through, to, to lifelong slavery. The fear of death is a real thing. I, I remember when I was in college, I had this conservative English teacher that I, that I deeply appreciated. I took every class I could get from Skip Hayes because he had a conservative worldview. He was not a Marxist. He was not into critical theory. He, he was brilliant when it came to literature. And he was absolutely terrified of death. And he was open about it. And he, and he was, his comments, his, his reflections on the portrayals of death in, in, the, in the world's literature were profound and searching. And I can remember having conversations with him about why he so feared death and pleading with him to believe the gospel, to come to Jesus, to, to believe that Christ has liberated those who are subject to lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. And to my knowledge, he still hasn't come. I still pray for him. But, but that fear of death is something that we as Christians are freed from because Christ has conquered it, because he's been raised from the dead, because we believe that he's the founder of salvation who's leading us to glory. We're freed from the ravages of death. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then in, in verse 17, the author's going to return to this concept of the brothers back up in verse 12. He says in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. If you're looking for a verse that communicates clearly that the eternal second person of the Godhead, the, the the everlasting word, the only begotten of the Father from eternity past, became man, there it is. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. All that we are, he became. Fully man. So that, why did, why did he have to do this? Well, we're back to the priestly concerns. Verse 17, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful. The, the Lord Jesus, having been ordained, as it were, for the work, having his hand filled for the work, being made perfect uh, to, to, to serve as high priest, having been perfected through suffering, he's also merciful. He, he, he becomes merciful. Isn't that remarkable? The one, the one who needed no improvement. The one who lacked no mercy within himself has become merciful because he was made like us in every respect. He, so that he might become a merciful and faithful. He, he came and he lived a perfectly faithful life. In, in chapter 3, the author is going to go into these accounts of people who were unfaithful. In chapter 11, he's going to develop... The, the, old covenant, the believing members of the Old Covenant remnant who by faith were faithful. The Lord Jesus lived out faithfulness. He became faithful by coming as man 
and by completing his course so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This this word, this is so precious. I, I, I suspect that we've all had the sense that someone in authority over us might be unhappy with us. And, and perhaps you've, even, you've particularly had this sense when you know you are not doing what the person in authority over you has told you to do. You are consciously disobeying, you are consciously outside the boundaries, and there's this nagging, lurking sense of, if he finds out, he's not going to be happy. Or if she finds out, she's not going to be happy. If they know what I've done, they're not going to be happy. And, and at some level, this goes all the way through us, and it reaches all the way up to God, and we know... God sees everything I, I'm doing, and this is not going to please him. And the Lord Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people. This means that the wrath of God against sin has been assuaged. It's been propitiated. It's been satisfied. The justice for the transgression has been applied so that there's no wrath that remains from God toward those who are in Christ. And this is the way that he helps us, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now one more aspect of of Old Testament, or a couple of more, sorry, aspects of Old Testament fulfillment here. I want to draw your attention um, to some things from Isaiah 53. So look back at verse 10 in bringing many sons to glory. And let me just read you these these statements from Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And then later in the verse, he bore the sin of many, this this word many, it also shows up in that famous verse, Mark 10, 45. Uh, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's bringing many, Isaiah 53, sons to glory. And then also in verse 16, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Isaiah 53, 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is going to have offspring. He's going to have seed as a result of what he does. And the seed of Abraham are the ones that the Lord Jesus helps. And then one more from Isaiah chapter 41. And and this really uh, gets at the helping in verse uh, 16 and the helping in verse 18. Uh, Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then when verse 9 says, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, when they translate that Hebrew statement into Greek, a term is used that is very similar to the term that's rendered help in Hebrews 2.16. He helps the offspring of Abraham. So continuing in Isaiah 41, 9, You whom I took from the ends of the earth, I took you, I helped you, and called you from its farthest corner, saying, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Verse 10, Fear not. Remember Hebrews 2. uh, 
he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this, this taking you by the hand and helping you, Isaiah 41.9, Hebrews 2.16, and then this helping, Isaiah 41.10, Hebrews 2.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, to, to respond to this passage, I've already said um, some things about this, but to respond to this passage, I, I would note, as I said earlier, that whereas Jesus is perfected through suffering here in Hebrews 2, uh, the, the audience is told over in Hebrews 12, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's in the context of him saying, consider Jesus who endured the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's, he's saying to them, Jesus suffered, you can perse- persevere. And then he, he says... Here in 2.10, he's bringing many sons to glory. Over in chapter 12, verse 7, he's going to say to them, God is treating you as sons. You know, this is in the context of him saying, you've forgotten the word that addresses you as sons, that, that the father disciplines the son he loves. God is treating you as sons. Our difficulties, our disappointments, our sicknesses, our frailties, we are, we are enduring for discipline, because we're treated, being treated as sons. And then, lastly here, on point of application, um, everything is subjected to him, 2, 5 through 9. So, I think 12, 14, it's interesting. When he, when he goes to apply this, he doesn't say, because everything is subjected to the Lord Jesus, you should engage in a theonomous takeover of the world. That's not what he says. He says in 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I would suggest to you that's the application of, of everything's being, been subjected to him. Try to live at peace so far as it depends upon you with everyone and strive for personal holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, I noted the way that we start with priestly concerns in 10 and 11 move to royal concerns in 12, and then prophetic concerns in verse 13. Notice how uh, there's the mention of Abraham, who was a prophet, in verse 16. And then there's the reference of the brothers in verse 17, recalling the quotation of Psalm 22, bringing back the royal concern. And then he concludes with the priestly concerns at the end of verse 17 and the rest of verse 18. So in Hebrews 2.10 and 18, Jesus, our great high priest, is perfected through suffering to help sufferers, to help those who are being tempted. In 2.11 and 2.17, you have the sanctifying high priest, 2.10, he who sanctifies, 2.17, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. You have the sanctifying high priest who propitiates the wrath of God. And then in 2.12 and uh, 2.17a... He had to be made like his brothers. 2.12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You have the unashamed brother, made in all ways like his brothers. And then 2.13, the children, behold, I am the children. 
and I think this corresponds to 2.16, the, the seed of Abraham, whom he takes hold of, he helps. And then the first part of verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, I think matches uh, verse 15, um, deliver those who through fear of death were subject to long, lifelong slavery, leaving that statement at the end of verse 14 in, in the dead center of this passage. He nullified the one who has the power of death. So Jesus is our perfected helper. He's our sanctifying priest. He is our unashamed brother, our incarnate deliverer, the destroyer of evil. We owe him everything, not least our trust. We owe him our lifelong devotion. Let's pray. Father, what can we say in response to who Christ is and what he's done for us? Lord, would you cause the seed of your word to take root in our lives? Would you cause it to make those who don't believe experience the new birth? Would you give them life through your word, through the word of what Christ has done? And Lord, would you make it so that we who are believing would experience the roots of this planted, implanted word growing and, and becoming ever stronger so that more and more our identity, our sense of dignity, our understanding of our meaning and purpose flows out of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And Lord, would you make it so that Anytime we feel guilt, we flee to the cross. Anytime we feel unclean or dirty, we go to the one who sanctifies, the one who cleanses. Lord, would you make it so that whenever we have fears, we know that we have an unashamed brother who is ready to help us. And would you cause that to give us courage Cause us to hear the word, fear not, for I am with you. And be, make us courageous, Lord. Lord, we come to you for the help, the mercy that we need from the faithful one. And we praise you that we have such a Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us to live lives worthy of this gospel. In Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit, amen.